Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I've returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I'm going to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Call of Leadership Podcast. Today, we are joined by the President and CEO of the Castle Museum of Saginaw County History. His name is Jonathan Webb. Jonathan, how are you today? I'm wonderful, Cliff. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this show. I'm really excited and looking forward to talking with you today. I'm really looking forward to it as well. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up. Well, actually, I, I, I grew up in Ohio, interestingly enough, but I've now been in Michigan for 20 plus years. Grew up in a small town of about 10,000 folks in Ohio called Bryan, Ohio. It was named at one time one of the top 100 small towns in America. So it was uh, really a neat place to to grow up and a lot of opportunities there and that school system that school system and things like that. I uh, ended up going to Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio, uh, where I uh, was a business major. And uh, while I was there, I also participated in ROTC. And uh, so ended up serving three years on active duty in the military during the first Gulf War. Uh, I was over in Europe and uh, so had a wonderful opportunity to spend three years of my formative life in Europe. And that's where my wife and I got married. She was also from Bowling Green. And so then we came back to the United States after we finished our tour in Europe in about 1993 or so and moved to Michigan at that point. And initially uh, we were entrepreneurs, had our own business. And then I got interested in participating in local history and, and took a job in Frankenmuth as, as the director at the Frankenmuth Historical Museum. And that kind of led to several years ago, me being offered the position as the president and CEO at the Castle Museum of Saginaw County History. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell, Cliff. You've gone from being in the military to being an entrepreneur and now having an interest in history. What was your decision or what made you decide to start focusing on local history? Well, to be honest, my, my parents were both teachers. And so that was kind of when I was growing up, I, I wanted to be a history teacher is what I is what I always said. But then simultaneous to having that desire, I also realized that at least in those days, my parents didn't make very much money as teachers. And so I thought, gee, I'd really rather do a job where I can actually earn a little bit more of a comfortable living. So that's why I looked at becoming a business major and, you know, then studied business at school. And my wife's parents were entrepreneurs. So while while I was in the military, which, by the way, is one of the larger bureaucracies you'll ever deal with, we would talk to her parents on a regular basis and they were running their own business, just the two of them. I would see how, how wonderful and how nice that seemed for them to be able to do everything that they wanted to do and make all the decisions on their own and not have to go through a bunch of red tape to do the simplest things as I did. And so I think that was kind of what guided us towards maybe starting our own business when we got out. And so we just you know, ended up doing uh, basically retail. And it was really a, a great experience, you know, a lot of responsibility. We were literally responsible for everything that happened or failed to happen in that business. And so, you know, you learn a lot of lessons that way when everything rests on your shoulders. I definitely agree with that. One of the things in life is, you know, whether you're running a business that's for a profit or nonprofit or, or anything for that matter, you are ultimately responsible for everything that happens under your roof. Absolutely. We learned about 
you know, dealing with employees and, and, and I really, I guess I got that experience in the military too, being a, you know, as a, as a platoon leader, you step in there, you're a brand new Lieutenant. You have the reality of it is you have no idea what you're doing. And I, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, this was during the first Gulf war. My concern was that I was going to get deployed to the actual theater of operations and have to be responsible for making sure people didn't die. And boy, you talk about being you know nervous because I literally had spent you know, a very limited amount of time, even on the tanks that we were, that I was going to be responsible for, um, let alone no, you know, opportunity to spend time, you know, in a real operation. And here we go. Suddenly we're going to war against Iraq and, uh, you know, it looks uh, like I'm going to get deployed over there, ended up landing in Germany. And, and quite honestly, they, they made a, a great decision, which was to take the brand new lieutenants and, and let us train uh, National Guard guys from the United States that were going to be deployed over there. So I actually never entered that theater of war. And the, of course, it was a fairly short time of conflict anyway. But, you know, you, you again, you kind of grow up fast when you're, you know, early 20s and suddenly you're you're contemplating things like being responsible for the lives of a lot of other people. And, and then, of course, you know, when you arrive there, you've got these sergeants that have been in the military for 25 years and they're the ones that really know how things operate. And so you have to be, I don't know how you say it, you have to be in charge of those people and direct them, yet listen to them at the same time because they're the ones that have all the knowledge and the expertise. And so just learning how to, I think, deal with people and be respectful to maybe people that are quite a bit older than me, even though I'm actually the, the authority figure. Again, you learn a lot at a very young age and, and that transferred quite nicely uh, to our retail business or just to, to operating our own business. And I completely understand your point. I've read quite a number of business articles and business books, and it's interesting to note that there seems to be this large push for companies to understand how the military develops leaders, why they're so good at it, why they're so effective, and then they take those experiences and translate them into the business world to help the business to become more successful. Sure, sure. That that totally makes sense. I mean, there's there's, you know, a certain amount of discipline that's obviously required. There is, uh, you know, you're dealing with people of all ages, races, cultures, and yet that can't factor into anything that you do. And it's really all about just accomplishing the mission. So it's a very mission-driven uh, type of environment. And I think that's what businesses like to see is people who understand how to not only plan, but then to <clears throat> execute. And I'm talking everything from not just tactically, but from logistically and, you know, that kind of thing, personnel-wise, how to plan out a mission and then and then execute it and then be able to evaluate it after the fact and, and figure out what you did well and what you didn't do well. And uh, so those are all skills that you are definitely taught in the military. I definitely see that. What I would like to do now is I want to talk to you about the history of the Castle Museum. Tell us a little bit about when it was founded, what its purpose is, if you would, please. Sure. Well, I'll start with the building itself. The The building was actually originally built in 1898. Uh, it's an absolutely gorgeous structure. I would encourage anyone uh, with internet access, which is most everybody nowadays, to, uh, to take a moment and go look at uh, photographs and, and images of the, of the building online. It was originally built as I said, in 1898 and constructed as a federal post office in Saginaw. And there was a program that the federal government was doing at the time where they were going to construct these unique structures throughout the United States. And the idea was to reflect the 
culture of the early, well, basically European settlers in the area. And so this one, uh, for this particular building, they chose to use a French chateau as a model. Uh, and then they combined some things, some elements of the frontier. So it has four uh, sort of like turrets uh, when it was constructed. Uh, or I'm sorry, it actually had th uh, three turrets when it was constructed uh, that, to represent like a frontier fort. And then there are little, there are statues throughout uh, along the roof line, kind of if you can imagine a cathedral with the gargoyles, there's statues similar to that that represent the flora and the fauna that would have been found in this area at the time. So again, a, a very, a one-of-a-kind design structure building. And I, that program was discontinued shortly after this building was completed. And I don't know if that was because of cost overruns or I'm not sure what, uh, or maybe just the difficulty of, of doing, you know, a unique building every time you build a post office versus doing a more of a cookie cutter type of plan. But for whatever reason, we were fortunate enough to get one of the unique ones. And so it, it functioned as a post office for quite some time up until the 1930s in Saginaw, when because of the rapid growth of the city of Saginaw, they began to outgrow the facility. And so then it was remodeled extensively in, 19, in the mid-1930s and to look very much like what it looks like today. So what you're seeing today, you know, is, is a building that's been roughly 90 years old as, as it looks. And then the, the ex exterior is, is more than, is, is much older than that, even 120 years old. So again, it's, you know, it's got marble and granite and, and oak and, and just absolutely gorgeous light fixtures that are from, you know, again, the Art Deco time period from the 20s and 30s and just it's it's just gorgeous. So first of all, even to come and, and, and work in a place like that on a daily basis is I just am so fortunate to do that. And then to be able to use that vehicle, that building as a vehicle to teach history um, and share that with the with the residents of Saginaw County is just really a, a wonderful opportunity. As far as the organization goes, the organization started out rather small volunteer-based, as most historical societies do um, in the 60s. And, and, and then when the, when the building uh, was no longer uh, usable as a post office, and they, and they finally had to build a, a more modern post office in the 1970s, the structure was then was turned over to the county uh, because otherwise it was going to be torn down. And thank God uh, the residents of Saginaw County did not want to see that building torn down. And it was turned over to the, to the county of Saginaw, who would then in turn... Uh, basically gave it to the historical society to use as a museum. And then that was followed by about 10 to 15 years of very Spartan existence for the historical society. Again, many, mostly volunteers and any, any operational budgets were done by, you know, vigorous fundraising. And then finally in 1990, the residents of Saginaw County recognized, I guess you could say the importance of, of making sure that we professionally record and, and present our history for the future generations and passed um, a tax millage that's countywide uh, our museum now. And so that, that has been in, in existence since 1990 and uh, has been renewed every 10 years. And uh, we just went through our most recent renewal here in, in 2020. And one of the few positives you could probably say about the year 2020, at least from our perspective, was that the residents of Saginaw County resoundingly renewed that tax millage, you know, despite the tough economic times that we're living through. And it passed by a margin because it has to go to a vote every time. And it passed by a margin of 71% yes to 29% no. So that's really, I guess, reassuring to know that, as I said, the, re the residents of Saginaw County recognize the importance of, of documenting and, and presenting our history for future generations. And for those future generations, I have to say that a few weeks ago, when I was driving around Saginaw County, no matter where I went without fail, I would see a sign in someone's yard that was saying, 
vote for the Castle Museum Millage. And I swear, I must have saw, I don't know how many signs, maybe a thousand signs. I don't know when I was driving around. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. Right. Well, and there weren't a thousand signs out there, but I'm glad it appeared that way. We had some good strategists on our team that helped us to figure out how to make sure that we got the word out properly. And and I would say really, you know, and this kind of just talks to lessons that you learn again when you're in a leadership position over time. And that is, you know, just making sure that you bring together a team of people and that everybody is pulling in the same direction. And that's really what we did with this campaign. And, and it's honestly, it was a it was a political campaign and that's the way it has to be run. We needed to make sure that we got our message out to the people in Saginaw County of this is what we do. This is why we feel that we're providing a service to you. And this is this, this is what that service is. And we hope that you recognize the importance of that. And, and so that's, you know, we, we talked, we're talking everything, you know, from the, the staff, tons of volunteers that are involved in our organization, our board of directors, you know, local media people that, that also felt really strongly about making sure that, you know, that, that the residents of Saginaw County got the information. Review Magazine, Bob Martin, we had radio guys that helped us, you know, just a lot of different people, but everybody pulling in the same direction. And that's really, really key. And I think when you do that and, you know, maybe folks who would have been up in the air or really had no idea and wouldn't have voted at all, when they see that, man, this it seems like everybody is behind this. It must be important. That really, I think, was the was the difference for us. And, and that's why we had that resounding victory uh, this time. And that is great news. What I would like to talk to you about now is, you know, from and this is something that I consider uh, and I think about everything that's happening right now in our world. What we're experiencing today, tomorrow is going to be history. So what do I mean by that? Well, we take a look at the year 2020, right? We have this worldwide pandemic, COVID-19. We have the Black Lives Matter movement that is occurring right now. We've got a presidential election that is soon coming up. And a lot of people feel that this is very critical to us as a nation. So my question to you is, is, is that as we're living through history right now, what do you see as the role of the Castle Museum as we're living that history? Sure, that's a great question. Well, I think we have a couple different roles. One is, I think it is our duty to try to properly record what's actually happening right now. And that includes, you know, stories, artifacts, things that are things that might seem small and mundane, but are, are a big part of, of everyday life. For instance, the, the masks that everyone is wearing. Okay. We've, we've collected some masks that will go into our collection, our permanent collection to be a, a you know, a partially to help us tell that story of this pandemic. So, so that's one of the things we can do, which is, which is recording what is happening right now. And I, and I actually did a series of interviews with folks from all different walks of life you know, about while this was going on, when it was actually a little bit newer, like talking April, May time period, you know, we had just gone into the basically the, the shutdown where everybody was staying home, um, staying inside, um, only going out when necessary. And just talk to these people about how that was affecting, you know, their lives or, you know, from, from a, a pastor at a local church to a police officer to musician that makes his money, you know, playing in bars that are no longer open to high school seniors to, you know, just all different kinds of folks and, and interviewing them in real time so that we get their perspective of what it was like while it was happening. Because every time when you look back on something later, you know, you, you're going to you're going to have that opportunity to reflect on it and, and maybe be older and be a little wiser. And you might 
think of it in a different way. So what I really wanted to do was get that raw story of what it was like right now to be going through this for these different folks. So again, that, that's kind of phase one, which is what's recording what's going on right now. I think the other thing that we do is we're able to go back and look at things like the pandemic from 1918 and say, what can we learn from that? Or what should we learn from that? Or what should we have learned from that that could have helped us maybe handle this one better? You know, and the same thing with the, with the Black Lives Matter, you know, what, what history, what stories do we have that we can share with people that might make them understand this situation better? And so, you know, we, we sort of play a dual role. We're recording what's happening now while making sure, while presenting what happened in the past so that people can use that information to potentially make a better decision about what we do now. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And I have to say that I'm actually a very big believer in story. So uh, I think it's really cool when you say that your, your focus is to capture the stories. You're interviewing the people that are going through this, understanding what are they thinking? You know, who are they? What are they feeling? What are they worried about? And you brought up an interesting point when you were started speaking about the uh, the Spanish flu. There was a documentary on Netflix uh, about this. And it's just amazing to be able to take that trip back in time to kind of understand what we as a nation were going through uh, at that moment. Because back then there wasn't really like a national concerted effort uh, to try to stem uh, the Spanish flu. It was kind of like everybody's on their own. And so we have history to refer back to when they say, you know, this city tried this and this other city tried it this way and they got much better results. So it's really cool that you're you're learning from history at that point. Absolutely. And you know, the interesting thing, you know, specifically about what you just said was, you know what we learned in 1918? We learned that you should wear a mask and that you should socially distance and that you should wash your hands. Isn't that interesting? Pretty much the same way we, we handle it now. And as much as technology and all the different things, everything else in our world has changed, the reality is viruses are pretty tough little buggers, man. And, and there's not a lot you can do about it. And that's, that's the reality. All you can do is try to mitigate the circumstances. And the, the best way to mitigate the circumstances, according to the experts, and that's what they found in 1918, and it still holds true today, Wear a mask, wash your hands, and socially distance when possible. So, Indeed. What I would like to do now is I want to go into our three things segment. Let's say that somebody is coming to your museum. Maybe they haven't been there for a while, or maybe this is even their first time going. What would be perhaps three key things that you would recommend that they spend time with, whether that might be an exhibit or, or something along the But what would those three things be? Okay. Well, this is going to be hard because you're asking a guy who's proud of all the exhibits at his museum. Okay. But I would say, number one, take some time to just take in the building. Okay. Walk around the exterior and look at the, the limestone blocks and the, and as I said, the figures that are, you know, along the roof line and the steep pitched slate roof and the turrets. And I mean, it's just a beautiful structure, both inside and out. And then take some time and walk through the grand lobby, you know, with its, again, oak paneled ceiling and its terrazzo floor and its marble walls. And, you know, so, so just before you even start worrying about, or, or thinking about what exhibits we have and learning about history, just take a look at the building. Okay, that's that's number one. Number two, I would say, you know, we have some really interesting permanent 
what I would describe as permanent exhibits. See, I'm going to I'm going to answer this question. I'm going to name three things, but I'm really going to name everything in the museum while I'm naming these three things if I'm successful. <laughs> so then we have these. We have a lot of permanent exhibits, okay, and those are ones that I, I guess we call them permanent. So they're not totally permanent. That we they will change over time, but for the most part, they're going to be there um, anytime you come to the museum. And those include things like we just did a brand new exhibit called Our Foundations, the Origins of Saginaw County. And that goes all the way back to basically prehistoric times and on. I mean, so we have items in there that, that have been recovered in, in archaeological digs. It covers the, the Native Americans that, that lived here, the indigenous folks, uh, the Anishinaabe, they called themselves, more commonly known as the Chippewa, Ottawa, and Potawa Natives. And we worked very, very closely, interestingly enough, with the, the closest band, uh, which is the Saginaw Band of Chippewa Indians over in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Again, they refer to themselves as the Anishinaabe, so I prefer to call them that as well. Uh, but we we really knew that, you know, that, that story of, of how the land that used to be theirs became property of the United States of America is not necessarily uh, an easy story to tell if it's not told properly. And I think we have to, that's one of the things we really have to be conscious of as historians is that there are always multiple sides, you know, and this goes back to your comment about, you know, it's a, it's about stories. Well, everybody has a story. They can all witness the same event or live through the same event, but everybody has their own story. So we have to be really conscious when we present history that we're, that we're thinking about the different sides of the story. So what we did was we, we went over to Mount Pleasant and, and we asked them for help and we said, will you guide us and, and, and help us and tell us if we're, if we're telling, if we're, if we're presenting something that, that is offensive to you, Please tell us because we may not see it from that you know perspective. And they were just so wonderful and, and helpful. And, and we did we opened this exhibit last year in in 2019, which was the 200th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Saginaw, which formally gave the property that is or the, a huge chunk of what is now the state of Michigan from the native tribes to the U.S. government. And so. You know, again, like that's a ceremony that has a very different meaning to the to the folks in Mount Pleasant and the Anishinaabe than it does to us. And so we didn't we didn't necessarily celebrate it as much as we commemorated it. And we involved them in all this on all the ceremonies. They graciously came over. We did a sunrise pipe ceremony, you know, in, in, at the at the site of the signing of the treaty. So, I mean, that's just that's one exhibit. And there's there's so much that went into that and so much thought, you know, and I just think that's gives you a little bit of a flavor of, of our permanent exhibits. And so in addition to that, just that one, we have permanent exhibits about the lumbering era, which was really the era that built Saginaw and the, and the surrounding communities, you know, that, that influx of cash and business and, and industry that, that was the lumber era is extremely important. So we have that. And then we have a permanent exhibit about the automobile era and coal mining, which coal mining, again, is, is a very obscure part of Saginaw County history, but it's there. And as I said, the automobile industry, which we all know, you know, most people uh, certainly associate Saginaw and Detroit with the automobile industry. So that's a sample of some of our, you know, our permanent exhibits. We have the Saginaw County Sports Hall of Fame, which is its own separate entity located within our museum. And that's a wonderful thing that brings in all kinds of different audience members than we would normally get. So they might, people that might not be interested necessarily in just history, but they love sports and they, and they want to know more about sports in our area can come in uh, and see that. And uh, again, really well done. Wonderful, wonderful addition to our museum. And then we have temporary exhibits. So, so my three things are going to be the building, our permanent exhibits and our temporary exhibits. So temporary exhibits, we are ones that we either do on our own with our staff 
or they might be traveling exhibits that come in, you know, that travel around the country. So we just had a traveling exhibit leave uh, last week that was from the Smithsonian. Of course, everyone knows the Smithsonian. And it was called The Way We Worked. And it was just talking about Americans' associations and relationships with their job in the last 150 years. Fascinating exhibit. We just packed that up and, and sent that back to, to D.C., and uh, this week we have a new traveling exhibit coming in and it's called Spirited and it's about um, prohibition in the United States. And so this is one that we've really been looking forward to. We've had this booked for more than a year and we had all kinds of grandiose plans to have big parties and do, you know, like a speakeasy and all this fun stuff. And really, we just we can't really do anything like that because of the situation with COVID. But it's still going to the exhibit is going to be there and it's, and it's wonderful. And that's getting assembled right now. And that opens on September 1st. Next January of 2021, we have another Smithsonian exhibit coming. And we're really excited about this one because we are going to be the first museum in the world to host this exhibit. And it's called Playball from the from the Barrios to the Big Leagues. And it talks about baseball and its importance to Latino culture. And so this is, as I said, again, a brand new exhibit from the Smithsonian. They're really excited about it. We're excited, of course, because we're the first museum in the world to host it. Saginaw County has a significant Latino population. So I think it'll be really appealing um, to that group as well. And so, you know, that's that's an idea of some of the temporary exhibits. So depending on when people come would be, you know, determining what's what's going to be here. But there's always going to be some kind of temporary exhibits um, that are available for people to see uh, when they come. So that's my three things. The building, our permanent exhibits and our temporary exhibits. How often do you change out your temporary exhibits? Is it once every six months? Is it once a quarter? Well, it depends. So the ones from that are traveling, like from the Smithsonian or this one that we have coming about Prohibition, we have those for a very limited amount of time, usually like 10 weeks or less. Okay. If it's one that we do in-house, which by the way, the vast majority of our temporary exhibits we do in-house, which means we're doing the research, the construction, and, and oftentimes we're using artifacts from our own collection uh, for the exhibit. So those, you know, it, it kind of depends. We have galleries that we, that we switch every two months. We have galleries where it's a temporary exhibit. It might be up for six to nine months. It just kind of depends. And we have smaller cases where we might change them every month. And uh, so we're constantly rotating things through. So if you come multiple times in a year to the museum, you're always going to see something different. In addition to having the opportunity to go back and look at the permanent exhibits, but there's always going to be several. We probably do anywhere from 12 to 15 temporary exhibits throughout the museum every single year. That is so cool. How do you decide which exhibits that you're actually going to be putting up for display? There's actually several ways that that comes about. Sometimes it's somebody walks in and says, hey, I've got this stuff and it's really neat and here's the story behind it. And so we may do a small exhibit on that item or set of items. Sometimes it's based on a date. So as I mentioned, you know, last year was the 100th anniversary of the signing of Treaty of Saginaw. Well, even though that ended up being a permanent exhibit, that was kind of the impetus to build that exhibit at that time. We, we, had, a, we had an area of the basement that was not being, or the lowest level of the building that was not being utilized. It was kind of a hallway with an emergency exit and kind of a lobby space. And so we had, we had space and we had a story that we felt needed to be told. And we had an anniversary of a very, very important situation that related to that story. And so those three things together said, you know, combined together. And of course, we started on that like in 2018. 
But those were the things that kind of came together to make that exhibit happen in 2019. Sometimes it's availability of an exhibit. So, you know, we're constantly on the lookout for, you know, what does the Smithsonian have as as far as traveling exhibits go and and which ones would pertain to the audience that we feel like we're serving here in Saginaw County. And uh, so there's a lot of different ways, things that go into it. And sometimes there's just a story that we feel, you know, we sit down as a staff and we kind of brainstorm. And somebody says, you know, well, what about what about this building? That's that's been there for so long, and, and look at all the things that have happened there, and it, and the importance of it. And or what about this community? You know, because again, we're a countywide museum. It's not just the city of Saginaw. So perhaps something happens in Frankenmuth or or in Birch Run. One of the one of the new temporary exhibits that we're gonna we're gonna put up here very shortly is about the Frankenmuth Woolen Mill that just had its 150th anniversary. And so you know, I mean, it just. It, there's a lot of things that go into it and, it, and it, and the idea can come to us many different ways. But then we just sit down and talk about it and say, you know, what's the story that, you know, that we're trying to tell? Then we go and say, what artifacts do we have that we can help, you know, illustrate this? What stories can we relay to people? Different things like that. So that's kind of the way it works. Excellent. And then for people who are coming to the museum, and especially right now with everything that's going on with COVID 19, social distancing, what are some of the things that people should keep in mind if they're going to come and visit the museum? Okay. Well, we have, the building itself is very large. So, you know, we have, we're following the same protocols that are that are required for any other business uh, in the state of Michigan. We do require people to wear masks uh, when they come into the building. We have hand sanitizer throughout. Um, we have signs reminding people, you know, to please keep social distance. And some of the interactive items we have actually taken away, things that people would pick up and handle and and, and things like that. So we've made it uh, as safe as possible. We've even actually closed off a couple of small areas of the museum where, you know, it's a narrow hallway and it's one way in and you have to come back out the same way. That way, you know, we're not forcing people to, to get in very close proximity to someone that might not be part of their group. So it's, you know, I think we've, we've made it as accessible as possible. And then actually what we did too, just because we know people are, some people are struggling a little bit, you know, with, with finances and things like that and looking for things to do differently. And so we actually have made it free admission all summer long uh, to make sure that anybody that wants to come or anybody that just needs to get out of their house and do something has a place they can come and, and, and learn about you know their own local history. That is awesome. I absolutely love that. My final question for you would be that if somebody wanted to learn more about the museum, follow you online what would be the best way for them to do that? Well, we have, you know, of course we have a website, which is uh, www.castlemuseum.org. And that's kind of the, I guess, the backbone of our, you know, informational wise about the museum and, and what we have going on and exhibits and things like that. But I would also suggest that we have several different social media, you know, things that we use, including Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is a great place to see what's going on on a daily basis. I was telling you about, you know, we have this new exhibit about prohibition called Spirited that's getting set up. Well, we had the staff members as kind of do a, hey, here's a behind the scenes of what it's like when when an exhibit comes type of thing. And so, you know, it starts from them unloading the crates from the semi and, and then you see this massive stack of, you know, huge wooden crates. And then, you know, then they recorded a few minutes uh, later as they're unpacking. And so they're kind of running these little segments on Facebook of, I don't know, one to two minutes of them unpacking, uh, doing a, what we call a condition report to make sure that everything is, is as it was when it left the last museum and to the actual construction, which literally is putting things together, building things, exhibit pieces and assembling them. And then, you know, to 
eventually to when it's a finished exhibit. So if you follow us on Facebook, you can see these little things and, and watch the exhibit actually get put together. And then, of course, you can come down to the museum and visit it yourself. So um, I would suggest, you know, the website and our social media as the number one ways to follow us if you're not able to actually come right to the museum. But, you know, again, it's free admission, so you got nothing to lose. You know, we're open seven days a week and you can just come down and, and take your time and wander through. And some people stay for 30 minutes. Some people stay for four hours. It just depends on the individual and what they're looking for on that particular day and how much they feel like reading and, you know, how many questions they want to ask of the staff and things like that. So. It sounds like on your Facebook page, you guys are kind of telling the story behind telling the story. We are. And, and we, we've actually done all kinds of different things with that, so with that Facebook page. And that's where we you know, aired all the interviews that I was talking about that I did back um, early in the summer. And that's where you know, we aired all these or where we show all these different things that we're doing, you know, whether it be just a photo montage of old buildings in, in, you know, in the county, or it might be one of the neat things we started doing, believe it or not, this sounds goofy and hokey, but it's been so fun is uh, there was, there was a recipe book that the museum did about, I don't know, 25 years ago. And we started pulling uh, recipes from that book and running one per week. And we had one of our staff members, uh, Deanna actually make whatever it is that the recipe calls for. And then she kind of critiques it a little bit and says, this is what I liked or what I didn't like. But it's fun because, you know, cooking techniques and, and ingredients and everything are a little different uh, now than, than what they were even 25 years ago. And, it, and, it's, and these were actually probably kind of old family recipes even 25 years ago. And so then what we do is whoever that person was that, that, that donated that recipe, which was generally somebody who was, you know, known in the community, we would tell the story of that person. And so we were able to just take something fun, like a recipe and give somebody, you know, uh, a new idea of something to cook on a Sunday and, and then tell them a little bit about the person who, who actually provided that recipe to our cookbook. So it's really just been a fun way to kind of tie in history with a, with a hobby, if you will, of cooking. So, you know, and, and, and again, going back to that, your, your comment, which I really think is fascinating is, is that, you know, it's really all about stories. And, and I was even thinking, you know, the, the word story is in history. And I know people often play on that and say, well, you know, it should be her story or whatever. It really, you know, the reality of it is it should always be our, our story. And because I think, you know, in order to, to have a good perspective on the world and on the lives that we live, you have to be able to understand the stories of everybody in your world, not just your own. And so, you know, I hope that we can provide that a little bit perspective for folks to come and see the story um, that's behind the what caused the world that they live in today to be the way it is. So that's kind of our goal. That is absolutely awesome. And the links that you mentioned for our listeners, we will make sure to include those links in the show notes down below. Jonathan, it's been great having you on the podcast today. Thank you very, very much. Cliff, it's been my pleasure. You know, I, I, you're doing a wonderful thing here. And uh, I hope folks take the time to listen to your other interviews as well. They're absolutely fascinating and really appreciate you giving me the opportunity today. And you know, if there's ever anything I can do for you, please just let us know. We'd be glad to help. That's awesome, Jonathan. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, Cliff. Thank you. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests, Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callleadership.com email, type in your email address, and you're done. 
Once again, that's calloflearership.com slash email. I'll catch you in the next episode.